I could reset one part of my life, it would be my university education. I think I'd like to follow in my youngest daughter's path, Michaela, who took philosophy and psychology. I managed to get a taste of it. You know, learning about, for example, Aristotle, a Greek philosopher. He was a student of Plato and a teacher of Alexander the Great. And when I studied him, it was amazing to realize I was studying what many think is one of the most influential figures in Western philosophy. Aristotle contributed to the areas of thought, including metaphysics, ethics, politics, logic, and biology. He believed in using observation and empirical evidence to study the natural world. And his work in biology laid the foundation for the scientific methods that we actually still use today. His system of logic is still studied and used in modern philosophy. But he wasn't always right. One of the thoughts which he wrote in politics was his view on how society should be governed. Aristotle believed that men are naturally superior to women, should therefore hold positions of power in society. As the son of a mother who single-handedly kept a roof over her head, and a proud father of two daughters, and married to someone who admired in every possible way, for all Aristotle wrote that has proved right over the past 2,400 years, his thinking concerning men in power, I believe, is wrong. Call me sexist, but I know we would have less war if more women were in power. The money would move away from weaponry and be invested in education, eradicating poverty, and keeping humanity and our planet healthy. My guest today is proof of it. Her name is Nicole Bourke-Boucher. She isn't politically motivated, but she's an extraordinary and gifted entrepreneur, business leader, philanthropist, and advocate for Indigenous women's economic empowerment. As co-owner and chief executive officer of the Boucher Group, she runs one of the Alberta's largest Indigenous-owned companies. And she's one of the most influential women in Canada. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Here's a short list of some of the things she's been acknowledged for. RBC's 2022 Women of Influence CEO Excellence Award. Canada's Top 100 Most Powerful Women. The prestigious Inspire Award for Business and Commerce. A recipient of Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee Medal. Nicole Bourke-Boucher, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you. Lovely to be here and uh, thank you for having me. There's so much I want to cover and what we're really going to build is the fact that you started your Boucher contracting with a used Caterpillar dozer. Today you have over a thousand employees and command a fleet of over 400 pieces of equipment. So we're going to get to that sort of incredible trajectory. But first, if I can, I'd love to know a little bit more about you. When I was researching you, I love this sort of narrative that you posted in an article talking about up until age five, your parents were trappers and your family lived on a trap line. Now, I imagine at five, you can't remember a lot of that time, but there must be stories that have been passed down of what life was like when you're that nomadic and your your life is all about keeping on the move to find your uh, standard of living. Uh, lots of stories passed down. And um, because I have lost all of my siblings, it's uh, being able to visit the trap line that we grew up on is, is um, definitely time for my parents and I to reflect, but a little bit sad for them because, you know, living life back on the trap line with, with very young daughters, um, was as hard as it was, you were so close as a family and they have so many, um, stories about the hardships that we had to encounter traveling back and forth. We were in the Wood Buffalo Park, um, different things, different stories that I've heard. And although, you know, it was very difficult to live that way and you're living off the land, um, at the same time, they always share it with so much, uh, joy and fondness 
of, of just the time spent together as a family. Do you ever find you're doing that now with your business that you remember the early days with that one caterpillar and how, how good life was and how complicated it is now? Do you think there's some parallels there? Absolutely. Uh, you know, when you first start off a business, there's, there's so many hardships. I was just chatting yesterday. We had our 25th kickoff anniversary here in our head office and I was telling some old stories and most definitely uh, lots of hardships in, in the early days, but at the same time, lots of fond memories because it was very much you were younger, you were growing the business, you had a ton of energy, <laughs> you were learning as you go, new challenges every day. And uh, it's it's just different now. It's, it's still good, but it's different. So let's talk about not quite getting into the business yet, because after the sort of time on the trap lines, I guess your parents may be looking for more security, a better base. They moved to Fort McMurray and your dad starts as a shift worker uh, working at Syncrude. That must have been the most abrupt life change for him because he was his own boss. As hard as it was, it was his business. And now he's sort of moving and dictated based on the rhythms of a business. It was interesting growing up. We didn't see him a lot because he was a shift worker. So my mother was a stay-at-home mom, and I'm very grateful for that. So we were extremely close to her. And he always said he made the decision to leave the Northwest Territories on the trap line and move down to Fort McMurray to give his daughters, his four daughters, a better life, a better um, access to education and a, a better future. And so he made a large sacrifice for us. Um, this is what he knew. Uh, living off the land and living on a trap line is what he knew and what he was fond of. And uh, it must have been very difficult. And for us, Fort McMurray, when we moved as little girls, that it was a big city. <laughs> so it was it was uh, very difficult to to get your head around a small little town and living on a trap line to moving down into uh, a city like Fort McMurray. You know, in many ways, another parallel is you're almost like immigrants. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're completely changing your culture, your lifestyle everything you know. And very often the story when you talk to immigrants, and I've interviewed many, why did you come to Canada? I wanted a better life for my kids. And what an incredible sacrifice you think that is because probably every day he left for the shift, it was a tough day to go to work. And what about your mom? Did your mom ever talk about that transition and change? And must have been, life must have been maybe different for her, but I have to imagine it's a little bit easier raising four girls when you're, you've are you got some sense of stability versus what many people would say is a very unstable life living on a trap line. Yeah, I got the sense from her that she didn't miss it because it, there was so many hardships. You didn't have running water. Um, town was very far away and you only got there with a canoe or with a skidoo or, um, so I really always got the sense, uh, from her that was so very difficult. She, she always tells the story, both her and my dad about, you know, being, a, I was just a, a little girl with a bottle and overnight the bottle would freeze, the milk would freeze. Uh, because there was just no heat in the cabin, right? There was no heat there. So unless someone got up and made a fire. So um, really got the sense it was hard for her. And I think when she moved to Fort McMurray, she absolutely um, moved to a different world and really felt like she had all the ease and access that she just didn't have on the trap line. And how about you? I mean, how old were you when you moved? I was in grade two, so probably about seven then when I moved. And how did you cope with change? Because it's now you have friends. It's not just your family you're relying on. You must have been, in many ways, again, using this parallel, you're sort of that foreign kid coming into grade two. Do you remember how how that was? Yeah, well, you definitely feel like you stick out like a sore thumb. And I, I will say just being Indigenous and growing up with a lot of non-Indigenous people, you, you feel like that. You know, you know, thinking back, you, I felt like that quite a bit of my life. Um, you know, it just even entering business, same thing. You, you do feel like you're, you're different because you're indigenous and you do stick out. 
Um, so that took, that definitely took some, some time to get used to. And you're shy and you come from a very small community and you're not used to being with a lot of people. And, um, you know, there's some adjustment there for sure. I was lucky though, you know, seven years old, quite young. So it didn't take long for, for myself to adjust. And then Fort McMurray became home and it's been home ever since. And I understand part of that adjustment is that you were a great student, but more than anything else, even at a young age, quite motivated to make money. You're sort of this young entrepreneur. Is that fucking easy? smiling so uh, <laughs> i've always ha- i had a job since, since i was able to so 14 i've never not worked in my life i've always had a job and then when i was 24 i started my own consulting business on the side and would work till three four in the evening and i just had a young baby and uh two little boys one one brand new and uh yeah so i i guess i always had a passion for being an entrepreneur and i didn't realize it where do you think that came from in terms of a lot of times entrepreneurs they, you know it's their parents taking to the to their business or because there's no no place to park them they end up sitting on the shelf near this you know in the grocery store was that any of that like what what drove you to feel that entrepreneurship was going to be your calling two things um and i feel like i stumbled into it i wasn't sure if it, i felt like it was my calling but the first being you know indigenous people being trappers are the original entrepreneurs of this land right and so you know that that just that I think is just built in us. Uh, and the second one being, you know, we grew up very poor and uh, I always wanted um, something better for myself and for my children. And so uh, I worked very hard to get that. And it came with a, a lot of uh, blood, sweat and t- tears, so to speak. Um, but I, I seen the struggles that my mom and dad had. I seen how we could barely make ends meet paycheck to paycheck. And I remember telling myself, um, you know, it has to be different. I have to be part of the change. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Nicole Bourque-Boucher. She's an extraordinary and gifted entrepreneur, business leader, philanthropist, and advocate for Indigenous women's economic empowerment. Age 18, your sister, who's just a year younger than you, commits suicide. I remember my dad talking about losing his younger brother, and it was his best friend. How did that impact you and how did that change the whole dynamics of the family? Absolutely changed uh, my path over and over. Uh, I was set to graduate grade 12. I was actually 17. She was 15 when she committed suicide. And I was home with her alone. My parents were out visiting. Yeah, I was set to become a teacher. I was going to apply to become a teacher in university. And uh, she took her life that night. She had gotten in a fight with a friend and managed to uh, take her life with a rifle and I, um, yeah, I came home to broken glass and RCMP all over and walked in and to find out, you know, she had taken her life. So the whole world stops. It was a, a huge, huge, um, changing point in my life. It, it changed the way I thought about things. It changed what I wanted to do. It changed, changed the person I am today. Right. So I, I take everything back to that night. And often when I have an opportunity to speak to crowds, I'll, I'll walk them through step-by-step of what happened that evening. Um, because it's, I don't, I don't, haven't forgotten a single moment of it. It was so life-changing for me at 17 years old. I just had a guest on Gary Yonkun and he talked about dealing with a mentor and he had a horrific thing happen to him is basically his kids said they got, he got divorced and his kids said, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And the mentor said, well, what are you going to do with that gift? Anytime there's change, it presents you with an opportunity. Do you think there was, in spite of all that tragedy, was there a gift for you that said, I'm going to be somebody different or do something different? Absolutely. I think that was the first gift. And of course, I've lost my other two siblings um, over the last few years as well. So 
um, the gifts keep coming. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, each one has been, you know, an event in itself and has been life changing in itself. And never had I thought in, in a million years of being a family of four girls and the eldest of four that I would be the, um, sole surviving sibling at 48 years old. Right. So each, each one changes you. Um, I like to say at the end of the day, you have to find the good in it. I want my life. I want to live my life. So they're proud of me. You know, they're up there watching and it's really important for me to to know that I'm making them proud and that I'm I'm being part of a change maker. I'm making change in everything that I'm doing uh, as an entrepreneur, as a mother, as a human being. And your parents. I can't even imagine. I have two beautiful daughters. It must be the hardest thing possible, not once, but now three times. I mean, how have they coped? They're very strong, resilient people, and they're probably um, my biggest mentors in my life to see how they didn't turn to drugs and alcohol. And, you know, they kept one foot in front of the other and kept going. And it doesn't come without its challenges, that's for sure. But, you know, they get to embrace uh, the grandchildren that they have. Um, the great grandchildren that they have now. And, and, you know, that really is what keeps them going now. I love what you're saying. You're going to become a teacher. Then how did that turn into becoming what I understand? You decided to get a job in maintenance and you're ending up cutting grass along the side of the road. I have to believe in those days, and you're not very old, but in those days, it's probably not a lot of females that were doing that job. How did that all come about? Yeah, I was, uh, I was working a lot in fashion and I was in different clothing stores and my parents decided after losing my sister to suicide that they didn't want to live in Fort McMurray anymore. So they packed up and moved my twin sisters, uh, to Fort Chippewan, which is my dad's home community. And I was kind of left in Fort McMurray. So I had to get a better job. And so he helped me get a job at a company called 2000 plus that's owned by the band that I belong to working at the Syncre site. And that's how I started working along uh, other laborers, cutting grass, picking up garbage, doing grease traps. Little did I know when I was 18 years old doing that, that ultimately that would be the business that I would run would be road maintenance and, and labor services. One of um, a few that we have. So that young and you're just doing the job because you, you know, you want to stay there and you need money to survive. Did the entrepreneurial instincts come back even then and say, I can do this better or my supervisor and I have a better name. They're not listening to me. There's other ways to do things. Or do you just kind of say, I'm going to do that, that shift and go home? Yeah. What, what came back is this isn't for me and I have to get somewhat of an education so I could do something different. You know, I, I knew right away that laboring isn't what I wanted to do. So I ended up quitting and, and moving to Fort Chip and going to the local college there to upgrade my skills and go on to Nate, um, into computer information systems. And that's where I got a diploma. But I didn't feel like I was an entrepreneur for a long, long time. It wasn't until I had my first biological son at 24 years old that something clicked in me and, and having your own, your own child, you just feel like I want to make this world a better place for them. And uh, that's when the entrepreneurship really kicked in for me. And I decided why, why can't I take control of my own life and do what I enjoy and run my own business? And so, um, after making that decision, you know, within a couple of months, I had four employees working for me and I ran out of my basement. And I did that for a couple of years until I became a single mom of two boys. And then I had to take a job as a manager with one of the oil sands because I just couldn't make ends meet um, as a business owner at the time. So I just want to rewind it a bit because you used a, sort of this first biological son. But before that, I guess your boyfriend surprised you from what I understand and and let you know that, that not only was he a charming guy that brought flowers, he actually had a kid or something, right? Yeah, I came home from work one day. I was a summer student. I came home from work one day and found him on the phone uh, where he had just been told that uh, he had a son 
son who was two days old. The mother was going to give him up for adoption and uh, they wanted uh, to get his sign off. And he got off that phone call and said to me, um, I don't want to give him up for adoption, but I'm going to need some help. And are you willing to give me a hand? So, of course, I said yes. We thought maybe we had a month to prepare for this new bundle of joy. And on Monday, so five days later, we went down to social services and picked him up. And I'll never forget meeting him for the first time. Uh, he was just the most precious, beautiful little little guy I've ever seen in my life and fell in love with him right away. And uh, he's, uh, oh, he just turned uh, 27 the other day. <laughs> wow, that's so beautiful of a story. And uh, he must be the luckiest thing in the world that you decided that you'd be willing to step in and help out. Because think of how, again, we talk about life past, how his his life has changed. So let, let's go back into, so you, you're doing some consulting in your basement, but now you become single again, and you now have two sons, right? You have your biological son and the son that we'll call Precious. And you go back and you work as a manager, how did that feel? Because again, that's almost like your dad and I've got my own business on the trap lines and now I've got to go back and work for someone. Was that a hard adjustment or was it just, I got to do whatever I need to keep food on the table? I got to do whatever I need. And I was only 27 at the time and and making manager of, uh, at the time it was called Aboriginal Affairs. They were, you know, charging me with uh, working with the Indigenous communities and coming up with agreements with them um, to ensure regulatory approvals through the process. So it was a it was a big role and there was a lot to learn, environmental assessments. So I just really soaked it all in, was really proud of the career I had created on my own through that. And it definitely led to a great base for my sons and I. And then, you know, moving on in the role to Shell Canada in a similar role is where I met my husband, David. Just interested about the role because you're Indigenous, you're representing a company to deal with negotiations with other Indigenous. Was there ever a conflict of interest? Did anybody ever wonder what side are you on? Or did you find a way to navigate that and create this sort of win-win scenario? It's kind of been the story of my life, really, is finding the way to navigate into the two worlds and kind of being in between where I've never really felt like I belong in one or the other. I've always just been in my own space. It's not an easy task when you, you're feeling torn in both ways. And you could definitely see it from both sides. I did. I absolutely did struggle with it each and every day. But I, you know, what I told myself is if it wasn't me, it would be somebody who doesn't care as much as I care. Give some advice to my listeners because part of the show is lessons they can take away. And, you know, you're going in with really trying to influence people to believe that there's a middle ground. I find the world today so divided. The middle ground is collapsed. It's me versus you. It's East versus West. It's French versus English. And yet, you know, people like you is what this world needs. It says, hey, join me on the middle ground and let's find a path forward. What advice can you give people? Because I think everybody's facing it one way or the other, whether it's a social media post or they're writing policy. They don't look around and there's not a lot of good company around. It's just anger or it's... Adulation. Yeah, and social media really adds to all that. So it's hard to keep the middle ground these days, isn't it? You really feel like you're you're drug in one way or another and influenced in one way or another. It's really your value and your belief system, a strong believer in in what you want, what the vision is, always knowing your vision, what you you know, the type of person you want to be, the type of organization you want to grow, uh, the type of family you want to have. And so I think I've just been extremely strong to my values. Um, that's how I've created the company, the culture in the company, my family. My value system is, first and foremost, the most important thing to me. And that, that forms the basis for everything that I do. And so I think as a human being, you just got to know what that is. Uh, what is your value system? What matters to you the most? And, and don't be willing to veer off of that, right? 
we come back, Nicole Burke-Boucher talks about how her and her husband built this business and why he had an appetite for risk and why she thrives in constant change. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. RBC stands for Indigenous Inclusion and Prosperity, now and for all generations to come. We're providing employment opportunities, customized education, encouraging entrepreneurship, and offering opportunities to suppliers while supporting communities coast to coast. They want to make a difference and be an active participant in the reconciliation movement. Reconciliation matters to you, to me, and to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Uh, Psychologically, I mean, I had to get my headspace around working in the dirt, putting on a hard hat and steel toe boots and a vest, and and that was just huge and, and so new. The opportunity to have the two of us go at it for the first little while together, and I think we complemented each other really well. My guest today is Nicole Bourke-Boucher. She's a co-owner and chief executive officer of the Boucher Group. It's one of Alberta's largest Indigenous-owned companies. And in turn, she's one of the most influential businesswomen in Canada. Talk to me about David. So other than being a mother of two sons, was this the first time you really felt I'm willing to invite someone else into my life and this sort of this fortress that I've created to protect myself? Yeah, David uh, and I met um, up in Fort Chip at a barbecue and we knew of each other because he was a, a manager for Fort Mackay at the Shell site that I worked at. And, uh, but we had never met formally and he's 10 years older than me. So, um, you know, I, I never really expected David to step into my life and, and to, um, that, you know, to embrace the relationship, uh, the way I did. But right away, he, uh, brought me back to, I guess, a little bit on my childhood because he was an outdoors person. And so he spent so much time, um, uh, outdoors. And I think there was a lot of fond memories there of being a child and growing up on the trap line and being able to connect again with the, with nature. Um, so we spent a ton of time early on in our relationship with my boys outside out on various trap lines and, and just out on the land. And so there was an instant connection there for sure. Um, and yeah, it's been, it will be almost 20 years. We've been married already. And how did the boys accept him early on? Was he part of the family or? Absolutely. They were really young. So they were just really happy to have him around. And they were so excited to learn about quadding and boating and hunting and everything. And so talk to me about the business now, because your CEO, David's your co-founder, you've built this incredible business. Take your time because I am so amazed. The more I, I mean, this is a powerful, exciting story of a woman-led business. And I'd love to know just how it all came about, how you and David decide who has influence and who has authority, uh, where you had got the appetite to risk. Cause you're not, I mean, you're fixed expenses. I mean, you're buying massive pieces of equipment. You're not walking some software firm where you're throwing things in the cloud. So sure. Um, you know, funny enough, I was telling the story yesterday again, uh, I started helping him out on the side. I kept my job as external affairs at Shell Canada. And then I go home at night with all the paperwork and I would do the labor equipment material sheets, the payroll, the invoicing, safety, everything. And it just became too much. It became too much, became a full-time job on its own. And so we sat down together and decided, you know, what's the worst that could happen if we jump in with both feet? And we decided the worst that could happen was we fail miserably and we would find great managerial positions like we already 
have, we'd go find them again. So we both decided to quit our jobs. And that was the biggest risk. That was the first and foremost biggest risk because I've worked my whole life. I've had a job since I was 14 years old. So to not have a job and to not have uh, a paycheck coming in was a really big risk for me to take. Um, and I will say we worked so hard that first year. We cleared trees on one of the upcoming sites. Uh, the CNRL Horizon site. We did um, some road maintenance on gravel roadways. Um, everything we could get our hands on at the Canadian Natural site, we did. Uh, there was a time we worked for forestry and we'd go pick uh, acorns for them and we'd bring the boys with us and put them in buckets and pails. So we did everything we could and we came out of a really, really hard year at a minus $250,000. And we actually found out about the minus on our honeymoon, which needless to say, ruined the honeymoon. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we felt we, yeah, we felt we had worked so hard. And, uh, you know, all the monthly reports coming in from the accountants showed that we were doing well. So what a big surprise when everything rolled in at year end to find out we, we lost money. And so, you know, both David and I are, are go-getters, um, you know, high achievers. So we sat down and we said, okay. Let's give it six months. And if we can't pull out and get out of the red in six months, then, and by then we knew what had happened, um, then we'll, we'll fold the company. And in three months, we were back in the positive and we've never been back in a negative ever since. So we learned a really, really hard lesson that first year, but I really believe it was for a reason and it built a strong foundation, a financial foundation uh, for years to come. Um, David's had the business now for 25 years. This is our 25th anniversary and I've been with the organization for 20 years. So there has been so many challenges along the way, obviously. Uh, biggest one for me personally is what do I call myself? Because you know, I, I always helped him out with the business. I, I'd never really seen myself as CEO, but he was really great in the first year of coming together in full-time operations. He gifted me 50% to the business, which I thought was really tremendous. It's not anything I asked for. Um, but he, he seen this as a 50-50 partnership and he said, you, you should own 50% of it. So when he did that, then I really started to really step into what entrepreneurship meant to me. And I really felt like I had something that I could work for and work towards. And I, and, you know, I'd call myself a general manager or office manager, and it took probably about five years, maybe eight years to really own the CEO role. And it really happened when Dave decided to run as counselor for his first nation, the Fort Mackay first nation. And he's doing, um, I think he's on his, uh, third term now with them. Uh, and then it meant he stepped away from the business slightly because he was more focused on his community. He's very passionate and loves his community. So then it allowed me to step more into the CEO space. And that's really how I started really running the business uh, on a day-to-day -day basis more on my own and uh, learning and growing. Do you think he did that intentionally because he knew it was your time or do you think it was just circumstance? I think it's just what felt right for him. And I think he knew, it, I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult to run a business together. We had varying views, of course, and uh, our marriage was more important than work. And so I think he decided, you know, one of us has to step away, not not completely, but just give the other one space. So it had to, you know, be him or I. And this, this was a natural fit. Um, so it worked out really well. And how do you separate, because a lot of people listening, small business owners that, that where they, the partners work together, you know, when a decision has to be made and you're adamant, it's A, and he's not certain. Does he just respect you as a CEO or is it, does he start putting on his, well, I'm also your partner? Uh, I'd say early on, he would put down his foot a little bit. Like I was not 
wanting to take risk like he was. And that's probably the biggest lesson he taught me as an entrepreneur is be willing to take the risk. I'll never forget. He talked me into buying a D8 dozer, which in back then was worth half a million dollars. And we barely made any money and didn't have any a contract for it. But he said, don't worry, we'll do this. I'll keep it working. And he did. And so, you know, I, he taught me, you know, such a big lesson in my life that you have to be willing to take the risks because the bigger risks come with the bigger rewards. Um, and now, now in our, um, business life, uh, because I'm here day to day and I have an amazing management team, he tends to really, you know, allow me to you know, really step in and, and make the decisions. And he's a huge, huge supporter of mine. And how did you find navigating a world where I would say indigenous women CEOs are quite scarce? And you come in and said, I'm not only taking on that role, I'm actually going to grow one of the most exciting businesses. I mean, you won RBC CEO of the year. I mean, that's not a, that's not an easy award to win. So how did you navigate that field? Cause there's another sense of middle ground where you have very male dominated and you have, you know, this is supposed to be a white person's world and you're coming in there and going, that's not how we're going to write this script. Yeah. I'd say, um, you know, trial and error for sure. I, I think I probably spent more time listening in the first 10 years than anything else. Really took it all in, really tried to find my place. I think I told myself that I had to be the woman who acted like a man to fit into the man's world. But the real change happened when I realized, no, I have to be myself. I have to play into uh, my, my traits, my qualities, my strengths, uh, my t- intuition. And it's okay to feel in the boardroom. Um, and I just got to be myself. And that's what's different is being myself is going to be what, what makes me stand out. And when I really accepted that, really accepted, you know, the strengths that I had and to play to those, that's when I really started to see changes within the organization. And we've created such a warm culture, family-based culture, uh, based on things like um, the seven sacred teachings for the indigenous culture. It's something I've focused on uh, heavily in the last two years is really pulling in the indigenous history and the indigenous culture uh, into what we do every day. And how about your boys and your parents. I mean, they must be so proud of of this sort of uh, CEO that's winning so many awards and being so acknowledged in terms of what you're doing, uh, not only for your company, but as soon we're going to talk about also what you're doing with your community. How do they feel? I, I think they're proud. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty humble person. So we don't, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll I'll get a recognition. People don't even know about it because I don't make a huge deal. I will say RBC, I made a huge deal. <laughs> uh, I brought down two tables. It, it was, you're right. It was a big one. And it was, it was a proud, proud moment to be an indigenous woman, female CEO in the room that evening and, and be the one called up on stage. Um, to me, it, it, you know, it was a way to, to just verify all the hard work and efforts, uh, were for, weren't for nothing. And to be able to put indigenous, uh, females, you know, on the map a little bit in Canada and to know that I'm a little part of that is is something I'm extremely proud about. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman presented by RBC. So passionate about giving back to the community that one of their KPIs is giving back to the community and how they participate, whether it's through volunteer efforts. And we have a program within the company that allows them to take up to five days off work to go in and volunteer in a community organization and be paid for it. My guest today is Nicole Bourque-Bouchier. She's RBC's 2022 Woman of Influence. She won the CEO of Excellence Award. 
20 years, you're still growing your business, but you've also this hearts roaring through in terms of your philanthropy. And first, let's talk about Fort McMurray, because we saw what happened with, you know, the floods, the, the fires. It was almost like the city was under attack by Mother Nature. Tore through Fort McMurray and the surrounding communities and forced nearly 90,000 people to flee. It's chaos, really. You hear the emergency sirens going, but I need to show you. For some, hope is all they have. You have to be positive because if you get negative, it takes over. Positive, be happy, and thankful. How has the community coped? What kind of resilience and what lessons can we learn as I do this interview? There's wildfires happening all over Ontario and Quebec right now. Yeah, I mean, we just had an evacuation from the Fort Chippewan community. All of the residents from north are evacuated to Fort McMurray right now, and it's something at Boucher we've been helping out with quite a bit. It's um, resilience from a community perspective over and over again. And I'm definitely seeing Fort McMurray in a new phase for sure. It feels very much like when I first came to the community uh, in the early 1980s. I feel like we're in a bit of a regrowth period, re-identifying with who we are and who we want to be. It feels different, uh, but different is good. Change is good. And I think uh, we will have new young folks step up to the plate in the service area and the non-for-profit area and the oil sands area and entrepreneurship take back our community again, because it is very much in, a, in an evolving state right now. You, know, you talk about this next generation coming up. You're spending quite a bit of time mentoring and investing in that next generation. Tell me a little bit about what you're most proud about in that area. You know, there's so many programs that we get on board with that help support youth, uh, whether it be a female initiative, a recreational initiative, a hockey initiative, and of course, indigenous youth in our community. They are, they are the way of the future for sure. Um, you know, education is the key for me. I'm, I'm doing some legacy gifts this year, being our 20, 25th year, uh, two big ones, <clears throat> both in terms of education, uh, because I really believe the real future for Indigenous peoples through education and educating themselves to be leaders uh, within our, our own communities. Philanthropy, huge passion of mine. Um, I think that it's extremely important uh, social responsibility. Uh, if you have the right to operate and work in this area. I think it comes without saying that you should be supporting the area. And I see too many companies just don't do that. They come up, they make their money and they leave. Um, they never give back. And, uh, you know, foundationally, it's so important for us to be a good neighbor and a friend to this community for sure. So in an article, you said, I was simply taught from a young age that I am no less than anyone else. And with positive thinking and dreaming big, anything is possible. Who told you that? My dad, um, you know, and he never, he never said it very often. So what, what it tells me is the power of your words as a parent is so amazing. And we grew up very poor. And I remember him telling me that it doesn't matter that this person is the CEO of Syncrude or this person does this or this person's a doctor. Nicole, you are no different than them. They are no more important than you are. Everybody matters. And I remember him also telling me, you know, how to manifest, you know, anything I want, I could get if I want it enough, I will, I will achieve it. And um, he used a silly little analogy to a sports car. And he said, you know, if you really want that red car, you think about it enough, it will become yours. With my parents, they were very humble, very hardworking, honest, trusting people. And uh, I think, you know, that's where I definitely got my, my foundation of my value system for sure. I'm, I'm so grateful because there are so many people I know that did not have good childhoods, especially in the Indigenous culture. And uh, I really credit my parents um, to being so foundational to who I am as a human being today. 
So if it's 20 years from now and I was interviewing your sons, what lessons would they say they got from their mom, the way you just talked about the lesson you got from your dad? Uh, you know what I, I really hope is that uh, they say that mom taught me to be the best version of myself each and every day. I just want them to be proud of who they are. Um, I want them to be a uh, valued member of the community. I want them to learn to give back, um, to be humble. What's next for you? I, I don't like to get too complacent. Change is really good. It keeps the organization evolving. So we have a you know a growth path um, to 300 million over the next five years. That's something I'm working with my team quite hard on. Um, and if that means um, acquisitions into other areas, uh, right now we're spending a lot of time redefining our service lines and what we want to do uh, in the next five years. And how do we grow, maybe continue to grow in our own backyard in the Wood Buffalo region, but also grow outside, outside and maybe into the Heartland area a little bit, the Edmonton area. I definitely see uh, Indigenous businesses right across Canada evolving. I'd like to get um, get to be a part of some of that some somehow. Uh, so it's definitely top of mind uh, for me. Nicole, I always end my podcast with my three takeaways. And the first one I love is the moment that changed for you as a CEO when you stop trying to figure out how a woman fits into a man's world and realize that it's who I am that matters most. I think the second thing that you said, you know, I've always been strong in my values. And I think that is just roared from your parents through to you, to your kids, how important it is to have values that matter. And I always say to people, if you chase financial wealth, you'll never be happy because you'll never, there'll be somebody richer. But if you find intellectual wealth and emotional wealth, if that's what you value is learning, being part of a community and contributing, you're going to be as wealthy as you could possibly be. And I think you're one of the wealthiest person I've ever interviewed because you're just so great. And then the final thing is the lessons you, you learn from your Parents, I mean, not that you didn't go through this, but losing your daughter to suicide, losing three of the four girls, and that they had the resilience to realize there's two ways to cope. They could escape and try to mask the pain and substances and run away, or they could just keep one foot going in front of the other. That takes such courage and fortitude. And I think that's such a powerful lesson for a lot of us, especially nowadays where it's so easy to gamble, to do substances, to, to get lost in a video game, to, to forget that putting one foot in front of the other is so important. So for all of that and more, I am so happy that you're joining me on uh, Chatter That Matters. It's just been an absolute delight to chat with. Oh, well, thank you very, very much. It's went by very quickly, I will say that. <laughs> but it, it's, it. you know what, you took me down uh took me down to places I haven't been for a long time there. So uh, I just really appreciate your time and, and interest. Absolutely. I've had a chance to share many stories of indigenous people and their journeys, and I'm better for it. Up until Chatter That Matters, my perception was shaped by Hollywood. Indigenous people were more often not the bad people. Much of it was frozen in time. I ignored the tens of thousands of years they inhabited these lands and how their cultures had evolved? I mean, what could they possibly teach me with my Western education and upbringing? Well, what I learned is I was so very wrong, that within the indigenous people, there's so much we can benefit as individuals, as families, as a community, as a country, and for the preservation of Mother Earth. Jennifer Menard Shan was an early guest. She's actually been on the show twice, and her story's about overcoming horrific childhood. Trying to come to terms with her upbringing that was a fusion of indigenous and Catholic religion. And finding a way to become what she proudly states now in her profile. A wife, mother, entrepreneur, and speaker. Jennifer taught me about resilience and love. Sandy Boucher, she opened my eyes to the path 
to reconciliation, but she held so little back. If this is something we truly want as a society, we must realize that this isn't a skip in the park or ribbon-cutting ceremonies by politicians, but it's a trail marked by understanding history, by listening generously to the present, and acting together with intention. Phil Fontaine spent a lifetime advocating for positive change and stating with such simplicity, with such profoundness, that First Nations people must be included alongside the French and the English as co-founders of Canada. Phil will go down in history as someone who achieves so much through positivity and possibility. Sila watts Cloutier, Nobel Peace Prize nominee, she found a platform and then stood so tall on it to advocate globally for preserving the Arctic and a way of life for the Inuit people. And today, Nicole Bourke-Boucher, we had a child, she lived on a trap line. To today, the recipient of RBC's 2022 CEO of Excellence Award for her commitment to growing her business and for giving back to her community. And coming up, Maraike Prada, a scientist who spent 25 years with an indigenous tribe in Brazil and has devoted his life to being in a constant conversation with nature and creating a voice that all of us, he hopes, will respond to. And from RBC, I learned so much about how they want to stand as a bank working towards reconciliation. They're opening their doors to let Indigenous people work in their banks, creating opportunities for suppliers coast to coast, offering customized educational programs, and supporting communities. And they also taught me how important the Indigenous economy is to the overall economy of Canada. Thank you for listening to Chatter That Matters and the points of view and the passionate pursuit of others. We're all better when we do so. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.